Welcome to our Like Dragons, Did They Fight audio series for life-changing services. We're so appreciative that you're here listening, and I'm excited to introduce you today to Marianne Michaelis. She is such a wonderful woman, and I've had the opportunity to associate with her personally. I'm not only impressed with her talents and abilities on a business end and career end, but she has an incredible passion for helping people to find the help that they need. And she's gotten involved. I'm excited for her to share her story with us. And I'm just going to turn the time over to you, Marianne, and ask you if you would just introduce yourself. Introduce, here's who I am. Here's what makes me cool. This is a little bit of my story about just who you are as a woman. And then we'll go into more about your experience. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I grew up originally in Utah and I served a mission in Guatemala where I grew to love the people. One thing about me that that I've learned to recognize is that I find joy in serving other people. When I'm helping other people, I'm very happy. And that's where I find a lot of my joy. And I fell in love with the Latin people in Guatemala. I fell in love with their language and their culture. I'm a musician and I play the cello and the piano. So I love music. I love language. I love I love reading, gardening. I love to be outdoors. What brought you to work in the Worth Group, to work with life-changing services and to be part of the healing here? What's part of your story that brought you to a place where you're like, I understand a woman's heart and betrayal trauma. What brought you to that place? I know that I understand a little bit of my own heart. And I always wanted a really large family. My husband wanted several kids as well. And so um, we were a little bit devastated shortly after we got married to find out that we had fertility problems. And so that was something we struggled with and did uh, treatments for that for many, many years. And well, before we were married, as we were dating, my husband disclosed to me that he had struggled with masturbation and we had a very frank talk about it. And I said, is this, do I need to be worried? And he said, no, you don't need to be worried about it. Everything's taken care of. Everything's fine. And so we went forward and we got married. And about two months into our marriage, I realized that my husband wasn't in the bedroom and I went to find him and I found him um, and discovered that he had an addiction to pornography. And that was devastating to me. It was a very low point, and I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it at all. And um, the the part that was hardest for me was as I as I stood there processing through, I realized, or I thought, or the voices in my head told me, "You're a married woman now. You need to put on your big girl britches, and you need to take care of this. You don't need to air your dirty laundry with anybody else. This isn't something you need to share with anybody." This is something you're just going to need to figure out because mm-hmm. this is, you're married and that's what married people do. And so I didn't say anything. My husband went and counseled with somebody that he trusted and, and um, somebody who knew me very well. And he was told that he needed to read his scriptures and say his prayers and that I needed to forgive him. And that was the counsel that was given. The person who we were speaking to, it wasn't a, a bishop, it wasn't, our bishop, but it was a trusted family member. And 
that person should have protected me. That should have been his job to say, no woman should be going through this. And this is unacceptable behavior. And your job as a husband is to take care of your wife, to provide for her, protect, and to preside. And if you're not able to do that, then she needs to separate and be in a place where she can connect with God and look for her direction that she needs. And so that wasn't the advice that I, that we were given that I needed to forgive him immediately. Forgiveness is a process. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when you get a, a wound and you put a bandaid on it, or if you don't have the bandaid on it, you have that scab. It takes a while. You can't just rip the scab off and have it instantly healed. It takes time for that scab to wear off. And it's, it's based on trust because trust and forgiveness are two very, very different things. And so the advice that was given, unfortunately, <laughs> wasn't the best because I should have had somebody that I could talk to about. I, at that time, there weren't resources that I was aware of. Yeah. And, I, and I think that was the issue is I felt so alone and that there were no resources. There was nowhere that I could turn to even say, what do I do? Do I get divorced immediately? Because my husband has a, an addiction to pornography, but I didn't recognize it at that point, even as an addiction to pornography. Right. Several times um, in that first year of our marriage, I distinctly remember being at work and having the impression something's not right at home. And, I, and just knowing that my husband was looking at pornography right then. And I would try to call him and he wouldn't answer the phone. And I would come home and I would say, what was going on today? And he'd say, yeah, I was looking at pornography. And so that continued throughout our marriage for several years. Most of the time I didn't really, I didn't always know. My husband had dealt with depression or what we thought was depression. Later on, we found out it was a symptom of his addiction, but that took about 17 years to figure out. But in our marriage, our dynamic was that he was very quiet and shy, and I was a very capable person who would take over and take care of everything. And so I became the person in whatever ward or branch we were in who took people dinners, who took care of saving the world. And meanwhile, everything inside of me was crumbling. I didn't know how to deal with it, so I buried it. Deep down, it would happen. My husband would disclose or I would find out. And I didn't know what to do, so I would just bury it, put on my big girl pants, and keep moving forward. This continued to be a pattern for many, many years. And then about three years into our marriage, we had a disclosure that was a pretty big disclosure. And at that time, I had a daughter who was a year or two old. And I was at a point where I um, was thinking about divorce, was thinking about leaving. And I talked to our branch president, and he just said, I don't know what to tell you. It's not my place to tell you. I can't, I can't counsel you on this. And things had to change. And, and I explained to my husband that things had to change, that I couldn't continue with this. And from that point, he started, he went to see a counselor. He started to do some recovery work. There was a book that he found that was very helpful to him. And so he started to do that. And he went through a period where he was cleaner. And so that gave me a little bit of hope. And so I was able to continue forward for a while. And then every couple of years, every couple of months, just depending on the year or life, it would crop up. And then there'd be a period where everything would be like, be okay. And so um, I continued to stay. 
13, my husband started to have some seizures and he was hospitalized for a little while and then everything was kind of fine. And then about six months later, he was hospitalized for seizures and they wouldn't stop. And, you know, he said, I'm clean, but I'm clean. This is, you know, I'm, I'm at a place right now where, where I'm clean. So I just had a question too about, you mentioned that your husband read a book that really helped him and mm-hmm. how important it is for women to find resources. How would a woman find resources? What's the book that your husband read? Someone will, I know will hear that and say, what was the book? Um, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, the book that he read, I believe it was called Turn Yourselves and Live. And I think it was by somebody with the last name Jeff Jefferson. Okay. Um, and it was kind of like a workbook and he worked through that and he looks back and he says, you know, I went through probably about three to five years where he felt like he really had, had worked through it. And, and I saw changes in him, which allowed me to be able to feel like I could stay and continue our marriage. So in 2013, when my husband started having seizures and was hospitalized for them, he was at a point where he was clean. And I remember very distinctly, he, he asked for a priest of blessing. And as he received a blessing, I was hopeful, very hopeful to have him be healed to have a rise up from my bed and, and walk kind of blessing. That's what I was hoping for and counting on. But that wasn't the blessing he received. The blessing he received was you'll be okay. Heavenly Father knows you and you'll be okay. And I was a little bit sad about that because that wasn't what I wanted. And my husband was off of work for about five months because he couldn't drive. He couldn't function because he was having seizures all the time. So during this time and that whole next year and a half, I turned into his caregiver. So I would take him to his counseling appointments. I would take him to all of the doctor appointments as we were trying to figure out what was causing his seizures. In that time period, I, I hit a couple of really low points for me where I couldn't do it anymore. And luckily, my sister is a therapist and a counselor. And one night I left the house, not functioning very well, and drove down to the park at the end of the street and called my sister and said, I need help. And she, she helped me a little bit. I found I turned to my scriptures and prayer quite a bit for strength. And a couple months later, um, I started seeing a counselor. I saw her a couple of times, but I was looking for support for me as a caregiver because I was caring. I was still taking dinner to people. I was still taking care of the world, saving the world, taking care of my husband and my children and my home. As I visited with this counselor, um, she stopped me and she said, what are you doing for Marianne? And I kind of avoided the question and I stopped and I, I didn't know what to think. And, and it took me a while to really process. And she just kept going after me. What are you doing to take care of Marianne? And, and I honestly can say nothing. I'm not taking care of Marianne. I'm busy taking care of everybody else, putting out their fires. Mm-hmm. And I left her office And I sat in the parking lot and cried and cried and cried. And I called a friend and she didn't answer the phone. And another friend who had just flown in that morning called me and said, I just got here. And I cried and I couldn't talk. 
And she said, come to my house right now. And I spent the day with her crying. And this is the first time that I, that I let my emotions bubble up and start to, to flow out of me. And the counselor I had been seeing had recommended that I participate in a support group from a, a local Christian church in the area that I lived. And I found out that my neighbor across the street was participating in it, which caused some issues for me because I didn't want anybody to know what was going on. And so I worked up the courage and I chatted with my neighbor and told her what was going on. She was very sweet and kind and supportive, but I kept having things pop up that caused conflicts with my ability to attend this group. And so I went to my bishop and in the 17 years that we had been married, that we'd been going through this, every bishop had known. Um, my husband had talked to them. He had worked with them. But never once did anyone say, how are you, Marianne? What do you need? How can we help you? Do you need a blessing? And in retrospect, that was really um, difficult for me. That was something that I really had to work through. But I went to my bishop and I said, Bishop, I need help. I need resources. I cannot do this anymore on my own. And my bishop said, good luck. I don't have anything for you. If you find something, please let me know. And just previous to this, my husband had come and, and had disclosed that he had acted out again. And, um, and so I had hit a point where I was done. I could not do it anymore. And so I told him he had to get help. Something had to change because I couldn't continue forward. And so as he, he looked into getting, he started attending the ARP group where we live for addiction, the addiction recovery program um, through the LDS church. Unfortunately, it was, it was quite a ways from our home and he began to participate with it. However, they moved the location and because he was having seizures, he wasn't able to drive to it. And so I continued to look for resources and a friend had posted something on Facebook, her story, and I couldn't believe the freedom that she had. And that was, that just kept ringing through my head. She's free. She just said, I'm the wife of a porn addict. And she just told the whole entire world on Facebook and she's free. She can talk about it. And I couldn't believe just the Liberty was the word Liberty. How liberating, how amazing to be able to talk about this. And so as uh, she had a link somewhere in there or had referenced life changing services. And so I went online and I, either called, I, I don't know, I contacted Life Changing Services, and about two years ago, I started to participate in the work group. The first time that I participated was really frightening. There was about 12 women in the group, and they started to share their stories with the, with, with the group, and I distinctly remember two of the women, one in particular, who laughed. She started to tell her story, and she laughed. She could laugh and she could talk. And I, I couldn't believe that she could have laughter and joy and a smile as she shared her story. And as I had an opportunity to share my story, I cried for five minutes straight because it was the first time that I was in a place where I could really share my story and be heard by women who understood. And so as I 
started to participate in the worth group, I hit a point where um, not very long in that I started to realize I have a lot of emotions that I buried. I went through a grieving process for my marriage and I hit a point where I held on with my fingernails to the worth group week to week. Everything that the therapist said, I wrote down and I studied and I read the books that were recommended and I realized that I couldn't control my husband, that the only thing I could control was my own healing and that my journey was a very separate journey of healing than my husband's. And so as I began to work on myself, I actually hit a point where I spent about a month and a half just on my couch, just processing through the emotions. It wasn't a very good time at our home. My kids were a little bit neglected, probably. My husband was still dealing with his seizures, working through his stuff. He began the Metamorona program shortly after I began participating with the work group. And while he had done a year and a half worth of counseling and therapy and things with the psychiatrist, as he started to participate with the Metamorona program, his seizures started to stop. And I couldn't believe it. And our relationship started to change. And it wasn't in a good way. As I participated with Worth, I learned that I could use boundaries. That I could say, wait, I'm not comfortable with that. And I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to be intimate with you unless I feel connection with you. Because that's how it's supposed to be. We should have connection. And um, because we had dealt with fertility for so long, that had really thrown a, a wrench into our marital relationship as well and so there were things that needed to be fixed and um, as I started to say I'm not okay having intimacy without connection right now that became a really big stumbling block for my husband and he felt very uncomfortable with that and we started to talk about divorce but we decided to give it a year we decided to work on, I was going to work on my stuff. He was going to work on his stuff. And then we'd come back and we'd see where we were at because we weren't in a place where we could make decisions with a clear head. I began to read a book called He Restoreth My Soul by Donald Hilton uh, Jr. And as I read that book, I remember commenting to my husband saying, I think you might have a sexual addiction, honey. And he said, no, I don't. I don't have a sexual addiction. I just have this problem that happens every now and then. And I said, okay. And then I said, you might want to read this book. And he read that book and he came to me and he said, I think I have a sexual addiction. And that started a cycle of, well, him recognizing that was a big, was a big game changer him being able to say, yeah, this is an addiction and I have to treat it like an addiction and start working through it. And so I can honestly say I have watched him crawl almost literally and claw his way through this addiction. I can say that it has been one of the hardest things that I've ever seen to watch. I've watched him not be able to spend the night in the same bed because of the energy that he's trying to fight with. I've seen him spend most of the night on his knees, pleading, praying, asking that this be taken away from him. I've seen him practicing different drills, doing different things, trying to refocus his mind and process things differently. 
it's consisted of a lot of cycling, of cycling back and forth over and over again. And I've seen him spend so many nights going out for runs in the middle of the night, just trying to release the energy and trying to reprocess what he's going through. And it's been hard, so hard for both of us. There are a lot of ups and downs in it. My own healing has been gradual and betrayal trauma is something where it causes triggers and you have triggers and things happen and you're triggered and and it's learning how to work through them. So as I participated in the work group, I learned how to honor my emotions, which was huge for me because I was so good at burying them and taking care of everybody else. Mm. So I learned how to honor my emotions. It's really hard, but it's something I practice. I've learned self-care to take care of myself physically, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally every day and to hold on to those and um, really to hold on to heavenly father and the atonement and to the peace that I found through them, understanding that Christ understands everything that I've been through and he's already borne my pain for that. And as I'm able to tap into his compassion and his empathy, I'm able to find the peace that I need to move forward. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's probably the, the basics of my, of my story. Ah, you are beautiful. It's an amazing story. That's kind of you. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask you some questions. You said earlier as well that you didn't really understand what addiction was. Didn't even understand what he was dealing with, what you were dealing with. That's correct. So my job in life-changing services is the worth group manager. And part of that job is I, I speak with the women who want to participate with the group. And I do a, a brief assessment with them to understand their story and their situation where they're at. And as I hear women's stories, I hear, I hear this repeatedly that women just don't know what resources are available or they don't know where to turn or that there are, that there are available resources. And so I had no idea that my husband had an addiction and many of the women that I speak with, they, they're in that same place where my husband, he's a really good man and I love him, but every now and then he has a problem. And I hear that repeatedly. And what I've learned working with women as they come in and they share their stories, I've learned that many times addiction, the addiction is an addiction to lust and it has, it's like a big tree and the trunk of the tree and the roots may be the lust addiction, but there are a lot of different branches. So the branches can be pornography. Mm-hmm. They can be masturbation. They can be dating websites, checking out the girl at the grocery store, massage parlors, prostitutes, affairs. And a lot of times it prog- it's progressive and it, moves from one thing to another. However, many times we don't recognize it as an addiction. We look at it and say, oh, my husband just says this one thing. And, you know, then he he talks to the bishop and he takes care of it and it's not a big deal. But those are all actions that come from the root of that addiction that's there that's underlying. But unless they really address that addiction, it continues. So how did you figure out, I know, what was it that book by Hilton that you read and you're like, you know what? I think that you have a sexual addiction. Like what was it that triggered? Like if I were a woman and I was in that place of he's a good guy and I need to keep my heart intact and this family intact. 
And he just has that thing, you know, but he's great. But it kills me whenever that comes up, right? But I just bury it, keep going. Um, like, what would be a s- evidence? Like, that is a, I think you're dealing with more than just that thing that comes up now and again. Like, how did you hear that in that book? <laughs> I, I wish I remembered. It's been a couple of years. I just remember the impact of whatever I read hitting me and going, oh, my husband has this addiction. But it was looking at something that was maybe written about something you were dealing with, right? Yes. Yeah, going finding somewhere a resource that talked about something that assembled or with the assemblance of what you were dealing with. Yes, and um, once a month, Maurice Harker, the director of Life Changing Services, he does a question and answer session with all the women in work. And something that he said somewhere along the way that was very impactful for me was, ladies, these men are dealing with addiction. If they could deal with it, if they could have taken it, taken care of it by themselves years ago, they would have. Usually they're addicted when they're youth. When they're between 10 and 14 years old is usually when it happens. And it's something that they deal with for a really long time. And so if he's 35, 40 years old, and he's been talking to the bishop and praying and reading his scriptures, and he's still got this issue, then obviously he needs more help because he would have taken care of it on his own if he could have. And that, that was kind of a game changer for me to hear that, to recognize my husband's been working on this hard for a long time, but since it's not fixing itself, Mm-hmm. some additional help. And so that, that was very impactful for me. That was probably the same kind of the same realization at that time that this is really an addiction that he needs help with. Yeah. One of the things that, that I've learned in the last couple of years and that they spoke on at UCAP last year at the conference, they said that for a man to, to go through successful recovery, he needs to have a support group Um, that social support from other people. And then he needs to also be accountable to someone who's not his wife. Mm -hmm. And that's been something that's been really helpful. And and I wholeheartedly agree because every time my husband came back to me and said, Oh, I messed up or, Oh, you know, one of the ladies at the office that I have to work with every day, she's, you know, she's kind of cute. And I, you know, I'm struggling trying not to have bad thoughts about her. That is so difficult for a woman to hear because as I'm working on my own healing and my own recovery, the last thing I need to know is, oh, and my husband's checking out the girl at work and he kind of thinks she's kind of cute. That does not help me. That's really hard for me to work through that. And so he's feeling like he wants to disclose and he wants to share and he wants to be transparent and say, hey, this is what I'm dealing with, but I'm not in the place where I can handle hearing that right now. And so for him to have outside social support and accountability to somebody else to help him screw his head on straight and go, wait a second guy, what are you thinking? Mm -hmm. Um, That's, I think that that's probably the most, one of the most important parts of recovery that I've seen that's been most helpful for him because especially with an addiction like this, there's so much hiding. So we thought that my husband had depression he had taken medication. He had done a lot of things for it. 
but he didn't have depression. He had an addiction. And that was something that it kind of hit under. And as he started to work through his recovery, it's like, wait a second, I don't have depression, but I don't like to turn outwards with the addiction. He always wanted to turn inwards and pull in. But as he learns to turn outwards and to have connections with other people and he learns and practices empathy, then he's able to make those connections and those connections are what help him to be healthy and what help him to be able to work through his addiction, pushing outwards rather than pulling in. That's awesome. Marianne, you've mentioned to me how passionate you are about women finding resources for recovery and the fact that there aren't many out there and a lot of maybe people that they go to seeking for assistance or advice because they aren't right in the middle of what you're dealing with or have an experience, they have no idea what to tell them. Do you think the answer is to just muddle along till you run into it? What, what would it be? What would you say if you need to find resources, if you're in this place, why are you so passionate about that? And what would you recommend a woman do about resources? That's, that's a really great question. Part of my passion Um, regarding helping women to find resources for healing stems from my going to my bishop and asking for resources and being told that that he had none. That was devastating to me. And so at that point, I started to talk to our state presidency and said, we need some support groups. I know that they exist in the church and we need them. And so our state presidency worked on that and they were, they were able to, to provide some of those support groups. However, because I have, gone through that drought of not finding resources and not knowing where to look, I slowly began to compile lists for myself and sent it to the bishop. Here's some stuff that I found. This might be helpful. And as I've continued to work in the worth group, um, Jennifer Johnson, the director of the worth group, she and I have put together a website, which is a resource library where there are church talks, where there are stories of hope from other women sharing their stories, whether their husband's in recovery or not, but their personal stories of their own healing. And we also have a a section there with a lot of information for bishops. And a couple of months ago, my husband and I um, did a training with our state presidency and with the bishops in our stake. And our state president has do a little true false question questionnaire for the bishops just to kind of see where they were at with some ideas about myths and truths regarding sexual addiction. And it was really eye-opening for them. And these bishops said, oh my goodness, I had no idea. And so as I talk to women and they'll say, you know, my bishop told me I just need to forgive my husband or I just need to give him more sex and be more available. That, that resonates with me that, that the importance of having resources for women to be able to say, this is, this is the truth. Satan for so long has taught us, no, no, you just need to be quiet and forgive. And, and forgiveness is a very pure principle and concept. And that does come, but a woman needs to be given support and love and understanding as well. And she will work through that forgiveness as she works through her healing. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One other thing that you taught me that I would love it if you would repeat it here is um, you, it's about women 
and the importance of them finding recovery. And you sent me some information about women need to know that I am strong. I am strong and I, and I can do amazing things. And you, what you sent me was, this is one of the things that we promote for the women who are involved in worth. And it was about a truck. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do the truck analogy. Yep, I yeah. Need to, I need you to tell us that. I'd be happy to share an analogy. We call it hit by a truck analogy. And in this analogy, there's a woman and a man and the man is in a big truck and he's driving along the road. And for some reason, the windows are foggy and he can't see out. And so he's careening and kind of driving all over the place and going up on the curb and not driving safely. And many times the wife is, she can see very clearly what's going on and she's running alongside saying, honey, wait a second. You're, you're not driving straight. You're going up on the curb. Come back over here. Turn to the left. You're going to be okay. You know, get back on the road. And so she's running along, trying to help him, trying to give him support and advice and correction and help him. Um, in that process, she gets hit by that truck. And we refer to that usually as D-Day or Discovery Day or Demolition Day or Destroy. There are a lot of different acronyms you could, you could put there with it, but we call it our D-Day. And that's usually when there's some disclosure that she finds out oh, the reason why he was driving this truck so crazily and he couldn't see was because he, he was dealing with attic fog and his words and his actions were I probably irrational. There's probably some mistruths involved there, truth withheld. And so as he gets out of the cab of the truck, he is so relieved. He's just like, whoa, I am so glad that that's all out in the open now. And now you know. And so I'm going to go talk to the bishop and I'm going to go do my re my recovery groups and I'm going to go work on my healing and I'm going to go on my merry way. And a lot of times she's laying there on the ground. Well, she is, she's laying there on the ground because she's just been around over this truck. And when there's multiple disclosures, each time there's that disclosure, she gets run over by that truck once again. But as she, as she's laying on the ground, oftentimes there's bishops and there's a lot of people that surround him and they're like, oh man, let's help you. Let's get you going. And they're helping him. Sometimes they even look at her and say, what are you doing on the ground? Why aren't you helping your husband? You, it's your job. That's your, that's your husband. Don't you love him? You need to help him. You need to help him recover. He, he needs to do all these things. It's going to be hard. And, and sometimes the husband will say, honey, I need you to come hold my hand while I go to this meeting. This is really important. I need to recover. But what he doesn't realize is that every single bone in her body is broken. It's been shattered and she's, she can't move. And when he says, you need to come with me to this meeting and hold my hand. She, there's no way she can do that because she has surgery the next day and she's going to be in the hospital for months and months in traction and bandages. She's going to have to heal on her own. And this is um, one of the things that, really eye-opening to me as I began my own journey of, of healing is that my journey is completely separate from my husband's journey. I, can, I can't control what he does. Even if I try to babysit him or police him or be his mom and put all the filters everywhere and check his phone and check everything he does, that's just exhausting. And that's not my job. And I can't do it because he's going to figure out a way to get around it. And so as so I learned to recognize that we've got two separate, separate journeys of healing, his journey is to go figure out his recovery and work on his, on his recovery. And he'll need to do that with 
that social support with accountability to other people. Um, but in the meantime, I've got to do all of the journey, all of the, the healing that I can, and I can recognize and say, honey, I'm really sorry you're going through that. That's really sad. I, I hope that you can figure it out because he's got to rewire his brain and that'll, that might take him three to five years because it's dealing with brain processing of how he processes things. And I can't control or even affect or help how he processes things. That's going to be between him and Heavenly Father. And so as I learn how to, re- to let go of that, I can be able to, to work on my healing saying, oh, and that's okay. That's your choice. If you choose to make that decision and bring pornography into our home, that's your choice. But if you do that, I need to set up some boundaries to create safety for myself. So if you invite those spirits into our home, then I'm going to need to find another place to stay and take our children's because we need to be safe emotionally and spiritually. And with those spirits in our home, we can't be. And so as, as I learned to use boundaries, that created safety. And what's that that's done for my marriage? It's been uncomfortable. I'll be really honest. It's been very uncomfortable. And because we had our status quo and the way that we've done things for so long, when I chose to say, and this doesn't work for me anymore and create my own safety, it caused a lot of problems because suddenly it became very uncomfortable and change had to happen. And so my husband had to decide what was important to him and whether or not he was willing to accept those changes or not. And um, at this point he has, and I'm grateful for that. And I've seen, I've seen change happening and it's still a slow process for both of us. But as I've worked through my journey of healing, I'm able to look back and I mentioned earlier, he'd had a blessing when he started having his seizures and two other times he had blessings and once again was told each time from different people, completely non-related, you will be okay. Heavenly Father knows and loves you. And as I've looked back, I've been able to heal. This has been a process that has also sparked and spurred my own healing as well as my husband's healing. And so if somebody had asked me, you know, what would you give it to have your husband be healed instantly to rise up from my bed and walk? That would have been wonderful, but it would have circumvented all of the healing that both of us needed. And as we move forward, the healing that we'll continue to have as our marriage gets better and greater. That's awesome. Before we end, what would you say to another woman who is just getting the D day or a woman who, whose husband isn't choosing recovery or, you know, that kind of things. What would you say about that? And what would your feelings and testimony be about you, who you are, who you know you are, and you've always been, that you just were like, I, that is so fun to know about me. Mm-hmm. What I would say to a woman who is just going through D-Day or just discovering that her spouse has a, has a sexual addiction, I would tell her that there is so much hope and to not give up and to reach out because there are so many resources. Even the last three to five years, there's so many more resources and there is hope for healing. And it feels like your world 
is falling into pieces and that there's no control. And I understand that. But Heavenly Father understands that as well. And there is so much hope and healing ahead of you. And as you hold tight to Heavenly Father, he will show you the way. When you're married to somebody who's dealing with an addiction, truth is often twisted and withheld and not always forthcoming. And it's really confusing. It's hard to know if you're being told the truth or if you're being manipulated. And as you connect to Heavenly Father and you hold on to him, he provides the clarity. He provides the clarity to say, you're going to be okay. I've got you. And I love you. There's a scripture in Revelations that I love. It says that he will wipe away every tear. And every time I read that, I can envision him with his daughters saying, I understand. I've been there. I understand what you're going through. I've been, Christ has been betrayed as well. He understands that at the utmost level. But he has us and he loves us. And as you work through this, you will find peace. And I can't promise that it will be easy because it won't. It's hard. But if you can be gentle with yourself and give yourself that time to heal and find those resources and reach out. Because what I've learned is that so many people are dealing with this. And there's so much shame that we don't talk about it. In our culture, in our religion, we don't really talk about sexual addiction. It's just so taboo. And the minute you say pornography, everybody kind of puts their heads down and nobody makes eye contact. It's really uncomfortable. And that's because so many people are affected by it. And it does affect all of our families. And if it hasn't, it will, unfortunately. But as we reach out to other women, um, as we heal and find our strength, we're able to reach out and to raise that torch and speak out against it. And as we do, others are so grateful. My life has changed because my friend posted on Facebook, I'm the wife of a porn addict. She will never have any idea the impact that that posting has made on my life and on the life of my family. But because she was brave enough to share her story and speak out, my life has completely changed. And I'm so grateful for it. Thank you. You're welcome.